Welcome to the Head to Heal podcast, where you'll go head over heels learning about how the body and the brain work together to either feed disease or fight it. I'm your host, Jordana Sade, certified holistic nutritionist and founder of the Mindful Clinic. With a background in nutrition, behavioral neuropsychology, and hypnosis, I'm going to walk you through the root cause of your symptoms and disordered behaviors. The body has an innate ability to heal. No one is destined for illness, and most, if not all, disorders can be reversed. Come with me as we develop a new understanding of how you can use your head to heal and truly thrive. Welcome back to the Head to Heal podcast. I'm your host, Jordana Sade, certified holistic nutritionist, hypnotherapist, and founder of the Mindful Clinic. I want to preface this episode and all future episodes by saying that I am not a medical doctor and you should always seek help from a physician before beginning any new health regime. Okay, let's dive in. So today we're going to talk about are my top five totally free ways to normalize your hunger. So I've been talking to a lot of my clients this week about hunger and specifically the difference between true hunger and false hunger. Because the reality is most of the time we're actually not responding to true hunger. We're responding to cravings that feel a lot like hunger. It would actually take 90 days for the average person to die of starvation. It used to be 30 days. So, and this was actually a recent study. And so in these 90 days, like the average person has so much extra stores that they would be able to survive for 90 days without dying, without any food. And so this is a really prominent and important statistic. And I find it really interesting because a lot of the narrative that I hear with my clients, especially the ones that are working on emotional eating or normalizing the relationship with food is they hear, I was starving, I was starving. And I think we need to be really careful with the words that we use when we describe hunger. And so in my six month container, whether you're working privately with me or a mastermind, my food psychology container, we take an entire month to work on our hunger signals and to actually understand the difference between true hunger and false hunger and to reprogram the brain to only respond to true hunger. And so I'm obviously not going to go into detail like that in this podcast, but I did want to give you guys my top five totally free ways to normalize your hunger. And these are things that you can actually start doing right now. So the first thing that I want to talk about is drinking a gallon of water. So oftentimes when we're hungry, we're really just thirsty. And if you have a habit of responding to hunger cues versus like your thirst cues, then your brain and body will actually prompt you and encourage cravings for food so that you can derive whatever little bit of water is present in that food. I know it sounds kind of crazy, but we're also looking for minerals here. So when we are drinking a gallon of water, we just want to make sure that it's spring water or something that's like mineralized because if we drink uh, you know just obviously if we drink tap water that's a whole different podcast but if we're drinking water that's demineralized or it's like reverse osmosis or distilled water then we are actually demineralizing ourselves and that can increase cravings for more food because we'll become deficient in minerals and so we want to make sure that we're drinking about a gallon of water to make sure that we're actually responding to thirst cues not hunger cues Obviously, if you are not drinking anywhere close to a gallon of water tomorrow, you are not going to be able to go from zero to 100. And that can be pretty stressful. And we definitely want to be working up in increments. So, you know, a typical recommendation for water is to drink about half your body weight in water. Now, I actually think it should be a little bit more than that, especially depending on if, if you're somebody who engages in physical activity or you sweat. 
But if we want to aim for a gallon of water, what I do is I actually just like my water bottle is a gallon. And so because I'm working from home too, it makes it easier. And so I fill that up for the day and I just like aim to get through it. But if you're nowhere close to being near there, my first recommendation to getting this started is to just buy yourself a water bottle that's at least over one liter. And so if we can continue to refill these liters, I think a gallon is like four or 4.5 liters. But if we can at least continue to refill these liters, if we just rely on like getting a glass of water, if I did that in a day, even though I drink a gallon of water right now, I would literally never drink water. And so it's because it's like in the actual portion that I need to drink and it's in front of me at all times that I'm visually stimulated and reminded to actually do it. So that's my first recommendation and it's super easy and I'm sure all of you guys knew that, but I just can't say it enough. You need to be drinking enough water. The second recommendation is actually exposing your pupils to sunlight. And there's actually, there's two different mechanisms that's going to work here to reduce or normalize hunger cues. So the first one is, and I've talked a lot about this in previous podcasts, but walking outside first thing in the morning. And this all has to do with the exposure to the specific spectrums of light. So in our eyeballs, right at the back of our eyeballs, we have these cells called retinal ganglial cells. And the retinal ganglial cells attach to a part of our nervous system called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. And these retinal ganglia cells, their job is to detect specific spectrums of light. So before we had synthetic lighting and sedentary jobs, we were actually governed, our sleep and wake cycles were totally governed on the sun rising and setting. And this is our circadian rhythm, and it's really important for the processes in our body. Like we have certain processes in the body that follow the circadian rhythm, and actually most of our hormones are part of that process. This is why when you go on a vacation and you take a a plane into somebody else's time zone, you can get jet lag. This is because your circadian rhythm is different than their circadian rhythm. So, So the circadian rhythm governs a lot of different processes in the body, and one of them actually has to do with our hunger and our metabolism. So as the sun is rising, the sun is giving off certain spectrums of light. It might be a little bit of yellow, a little bit of blue. (laughs) I don't know exactly what the percentages or combination is, but if we expose our retinal ganglia cells to these certain spectrums of light, it's going to stimulate the suprachiasmatic nucleus in the nervous system to reset the internal clock for all of our endocrine organs. This is super important because we have to remember when we talk about things like leptin and ghrelin, these are our hunger hormones and they're hormones, right? Nonetheless. And also like metabolism, thyroid hormone, estrogen, testosterone, these are all hormones. And so if we can just expose our pupils to that like first morning light, and it has to be as the sun is rising, if the sun is already at 12 o'clock in the sky, it's too late. Then if we can expose our pupils to that morning light, even for like two to five minutes a day, we are going to be resetting these internal processes and it's going to allow for you to reduce your hunger cues. So throughout the day, you're going to notice that you're just a bit more satiated because your hormones are balanced. Now, this isn't like an overnight thing. I would, you don't just do it one day and you're like, well, I'm cured. (laughs) This is something, rebalancing hormones takes months. And so I would commit to a practice like this for at least like 30 to 60 days and then see how you feel. And as a bonus, you can also expose yourself to the evening light as the sun is setting. And as we're going into summer now, it's going to be a lot easier because you can just go for a quick walk in the morning, 
quick walk after dinner and then you're you're golden. Like your sleep and wake cycles are going to be perfect. You're going to rebalance your hormones. Your metabolism is going to be awesome and it's going to feel really good. So that's uh, the first thing uh, for exposing to sunlight. And then the second part of this is that um, we have different parts of the nervous system that regulate our hunger cues. And one of those is in the arcuate nucleus. And the arcuate nucleus's job is basically to put the brakes on hunger or to stimulate hunger, to accelerate hunger. And the arcuate nucleus puts the brakes on hum- hunger if there's a certain hormone that's present, and that's melanostimulating hormone, or MSH. If you're familiar with any science verbiage, you'll you'll realize that melanostimulating hormone is directly related to the sun. So if we can expose ourselves even during the day to more sunlight, the brain's going to release melanostimulating hormone, and melanostimulating hormone is going to stimulate the arcuate nucleus, which is going to put the brakes on hunger. This is why in the summertime we are a lot less hungry than in the wintertime. And actually, all animals have this as well as humans. So you might notice that once like fall is over and in the winter season. And we might be more inclined to eat more often and pack on those pounds because we are not receiving enough sunlight. And I saw this firsthand when I went to Jamaica in December. I was barely hungry, even though I had like an excess of food and I was pregnant at the time too. And so we had these like 24 hour buffets and I just felt so satiated by the sun. And so this is like one of the other processes. So the first recommendation is water. The second is sunlight. And there's two kind of mechanisms there. And the third uh, top tip is going to be delaying hunger cues. So I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast that oftentimes we're not responding to true hunger. We're responding to cravings or false hunger. So what delaying hunger cues means is it's when we hear that first ping for hunger. It's like the brain's like, "Ah, I want to eat something. We want to delay that process because if every time we hear that like craving or that desire to eat, we respond to that craving by eating something, we reinforce a very strong habit craving, eat, craving, eat, craving, eat. Until we actually don't even really hear the craving, we just end up in the kitchen and we're like, we've already eaten a whole bag of chips and we don't even know how it happened, right? And so this is because, you know, this is a learned experience. This is classical conditioning and it's learning by association. So if we have that craving or desire to eat and instead of saying, no, I can't eat, if we fight the craving, the craving's gonna get louder because the brain perceives that craving as being related to survival. Like all eating habits are related to survival. It's just that we're actually not in survival mode in survival mode 24/7 hours a day right where the brain actually feels like if we have this constant habit of eating continuously the brain is like this is related to survival i need this amount of food and it actually doesn't like you can go 90 days without eating right and so you've just trained your brain to believe it needs a certain amount of food when it really really doesn't and so if we can hear this craving and we, if we fight the craving, the brain's going to feel scarce and it's going to go into panic mode. It's going to be like, oh my God, this bitch is going to starve me. Especially if you've been on diets before where you have experienced like, start like really not listening to your hunger cues. It's if you like, if you hear the craving and you're like, no, I'm on a diet, I'm not eating, I'm not going to reinforce this craving. Then the craving is going to start to be, speak louder because it's going to be in scarcity mode and it's going to feel like an emergency. Okay. So, but if we hear the craving and we can just say, 
okay, I hear you. I'm just going to come back in 10 minutes. Let me just write this email first. Let me go and get a glass of water. Okay. Like we want to hear the craving and we want to acknowledge it. And we want to just be like, let me just do something first. So by doing this, we're redirecting the nervous system and we're actually going to teach your nervous system to prioritize certain thoughts. Because the reality is if you've eaten at any point in time in that past 24 hours, that craving is not true hunger. Okay. And so if it's not related to true hunger and you're not reinforcing, forcing it right away, eventually the craving will go away because it doesn't serve a purpose. It's like if you have an animal like a dog and the dog comes to a stray dog, let's say, and he goes to this one house because these people feed him. So he goes to the house, the people feeds him and the dog's like, all right, now I know I can come back to this house. It's a learned experience. So the dog comes back to the house, the people feed him. Great. Now we have a strong association. But if the dog comes back to the house and the people don't feed him, the dog's going to be like, okay, I'm going to come back, right? Like I'm going to come, I'll go away and I'll come back. And if he keeps not being fed, then eventually the dog is going to learn like I'm not going to get food here and the dog's going to go away. So I want you to think about this craving kind of like this dog, right? The craving's not related to real hunger. You're not hungry if you've eaten at any point in time in the past 24 hours. So if you hear that craving and you respond or you reinforce the craving with eating, the craving is going to feel really real and the brain is going to learn it. It's going to learn this habit um, and it's actually the globus pallidus and the basal ganglia that learn these processes related to like um, hunger and survival. But it's going to learn this process and then every time you have a craving, it's going to expect that there's going to be food. But if we want to unlearn this process, we can't say no to the craving. All we need to do is delay the craving. So we just want to hear the craving and instead of saying no, we say, I'll come back to that later. Let me write this email first. What if I called a friend? Like do just distract yourself until eventually the craving will go away. And then you'll start to realize what true hunger actually feels like. Another way that you can do this is by delaying your breakfast. And I'm not here trying to um, promote intermittent fasting or any of that. But if we normally wake up and eat at 9 a.m. in the morning, every morning at 9 a.m., ghrelin's going to come up. Ghrelin is our I'm hungry hormone. Ghrelin's going to come out because it's released on a routine schedule. So every morning at 9 a.m., you're going to get the like desire to eat, right? But you might not even be hungry at 9 a.m., like true hunger. And so if you wake up and you eat at 9 a.m. every morning, when you first get that desire to eat, you might say like, okay, let me delay this for 20 minutes. I'm going to come back in 20 minutes and just keep pushing your breakfast back and back and back until you're like, now I'm actually really hungry and then you can eat, right? And so this whole process is not to starve yourself. I'm not trying to promote here that we should all not eat for 90 days at all. The only thing that I'm trying to say is that we need to get really clear on what is true hunger and what is false hunger. And more often than not, we're responding to cravings. The other benefit of, you know, delaying hunger and not reinforcing those cravings is every single time that we have that desire to eat, if we don't reinforce it, the body's used to getting food at that point. And so it's actually going to go into your stores and you use stored energy or stored fat as immediate energy. So we're telling when we don't reinforce that craving, when we hear hunger and we don't eat, we're actually telling the body to use our stored fat as energy. So we're burning fat, which is I think kind of why you guys are here, right? That's the point. So if we want to have a really sustainable weight loss, we definitely need to become more intuitive with our hunger cues. And part of that is learning to delay these cravings and understanding the difference between true hunger and false hunger. I've also described uh, this exercise that I do with my clients on multiple podcasts. Uh, I was just interviewed on another podcast and she just posted about it. So it reminded me, but 
Uh, you can also do the broccoli test. So if you get that first craving to, de- to really determine is if it's true hunger or false hunger, you can hear the craving and say, would I eat raw broccoli right now? Or would I eat like steamed broccoli with like no toppings? And if the answer is yes, if you, you would eat that like very bland vegetable, then you're probably hungry. But if the answer is no, if you're hungry for something specific, like I want something crunchy, I want something sweet, I want something salty, you're opening up your cupboards and you're like, mm, not that not that that's not real hunger real hunger is like I need to eat right now for survival I'm going to tell you a funny story so when I met one of my favorite clients she's so sweet we haven't worked she she's been done the program for a while but the first time that I met her we did her intake session and I was trying to get a better sense of what her eating behaviors were like so she was telling me, you know, she uh, woke up and she ate breakfast and then she was meeting her friend for lunch and it was a two-hour drive to meet her friend. So she was saying, I woke up, I ate breakfast, I packed my car full of snacks and then I went to go meet my friend for lunch. And I was like, just out of curiosity, why did you pack your car full of snacks? And she was like, well, just in case. I was like, in case of what? <laughs> she was like, well, in case I got hungry. And I was like, yeah, but you just ate and you were going for lunch. And she was like, well, what if the car broke down? And then I was like, but CAA would come and save you before you would starve to death, right? And so the reason why I highlight this example is I think it spotlights a really interesting human behavior that we have around food and that's food hoarding. It's like you will never, ever, ever be in a situation where you're not going to have access to food for so long that you'll die. And so we need to be really careful and really aware of our behaviors and tendencies as it relates to food. If she didn't pack her car full of snacks, the nervous system might have felt like, oh my God, I'm hungry. It might feel like an emergency. But the more that we can practice hearing that signal and not reinforcing it and being like telling the nervous system, hey, you're safe here, we're going to be okay. We're going to get food soon, right? Hunger is not an emergency. The more that we can train the nervous system to only respond to true hunger cues. Okay. I hope that made sense to everybody. (laughs) But uh, like I said, this is like, it's an extensive process and we definitely spend a lot of time doing it at my mastermind and my private coaching and rewiring the nervous system. So it just gets a bit easier, but just right off the bat, one thing that you can do to help this process along is just to delay your hunger. The fourth recommendation is working on the dopamine receptors. And so my recommendation, like the top tip for you that you could do is do something creative or listen to music. And that's because these creative experiences are going to help the nervous system to release dopamine. And a lot of times when we are feeling the desire to eat, it's because our nervous system wants dopamine. Our nervous system just wants a hit of something. It just wants to be happy. Like I said, if you've eaten at any point in time in the past 24 hours, you're likely not really hungry and you would give your body an opportunity to use your stored energy or stored fat as energy. So my husband did a five-day water fast and he was less hungry on day five than he was on day one. And so this goes to tell you like a lot of the time we are responding to these cravings, right? And when we think about dopamine and the nervous system, hunger and dopamine are directly related. So we it through dopamine feedback loops and specifically in the mesocortical limbic dopamine pathways in the nervous system that are, and this mesocortical limbic pathway is present in all animals and it's amplified in early humans. So this is the specific pathway that is a part of our brain that motivates us to engage in behaviors that are related to our survival. So this is like motivating us to engage in behaviors related to obtaining food, water, sex, etc. 
Dopamine, as we know, is the molecule of more, okay? It's not the molecule of pleasure, and we're gonna talk a lot more about dopamine in, in future episodes, but dopamine is the molecule of more. So it's, it, it's going to encourage movement, like physical movement. Dopamine just wants more dopamine. So when we release dopamine, it just wants more of it, okay? And like I said, we are going to dive way deeper into dopamine. I'm, I've re- already recorded a future episode on the neuroscience of addiction. And so I'm going to go into it a lot there. But for now, I just want you to know that dopamine is related to movement and getting more of what you have. And when it's expressed, especially in the mesocortical limbic system, it's related to encouraging movement towards obtaining things related to survival. So without these pathways, we would literally stay still and starve to death. So it's very, very adaptive. This is a very adaptive system. However, there are some individuals that have like inconsistent or overactive dopamine pathways. And so part of this is like through habit, habitual stuff. If you're somebody who like has a habit of eating highly palatable foods, that's like really processed foods, super sweet, super salty, then you're just training your nervous system to only favor things that are going to release a lot of dopamine, right? Whereas we can retrain our palate so that we are more used to whole foods or like blander foods. And then when we have something like an intent, like a chocolate, it feels almost too sweet, right? And so a lot of it comes down to habit, but there's actually also a genetic mutation. And this has been researched for quite some time, but there's a genetic mutation on the do- on dopamine that might predispose someone to be more inclined to develop obesity or addictions. Now, the research on this genetic mutation dates back to 1996. Uh, and so I'm just going to reference a study by Bloom et al. And I will put it in the show notes, but... Basically, the TAC-A1 variant of the human DRD2 gene, so the the gene we're looking for is the DRD2 gene, and it's been associated with drug addiction and some forms of severe alcoholism and other impulsive and addictive disorders or behaviors. And so this DRD2 gene is a mutation on the dopamine pathway in in your system. And the preliminary data suggests that the presence of this DRD2A1, like the mutation, basically confirms that there's an increased risk not only for obesity, but for all other related addictive behaviors. So if you guys have been listening to my podcast or you know who I am, you know that for me, like it, it, it started with being overweight as a kid, but then it bled into like years of substance abuse, right? And then back to food addiction, et cetera. And so this DRD2 gene is a mutation on the dopamine pathways, which is going to predispose somebody to be more inclined to engage in behaviors that is going to release a lot of dopamine. It's like they're constantly searching. Dopamine's about searching. Serotonin is about remaining satiated. It's about remaining still. So if we're constantly searching, we're never happy, right? And so people that have this DRD2 uh, mutation are significantly more likely to engage in behaviors that are going to like promote the release of dopamine. And the the interesting thing about that is like, these are like pleasure seeking behaviors, but we never ever feel pleasurable because as soon as we release more dopamine, we're searching for more, right? And so it's really interesting, but in this study, basically what they found was that in a study of, I think it was 40 participants, both male and female, that had a a BMI that was clinically obese, so anything over 30, that in 73.9% of them, these obese subjects might have had comorbid substance disorder, and in 73%, almost 74%, the DRD2 uh, mutation was present. And so what this tells us is that if we have this mutation on this gene, we're so much more likely to engage in addictive tendencies towards food or other substances. 
And I just found this really interesting because we know that addiction is mostly a learned thing, but there is a little bit of a genetic component there to it. And because I'm of the mind frame that addiction is like not the disease model, I'm very much so of the Dr. Gabor Mate type of model where it's, you know, related to trauma and self-soothing and addiction is really a an answer to the problem, not the problem itself. But we can't deny the science here. And there is a specific gene that would predispose you to be more likely to be obese or engage in these addictive tendencies. And that's the DRD2 gene. So of course we need to recognize that genetics need to be expressed in order to be active. So like these mutations, even if you have it, it doesn't mean that you're going to develop obesity. It's not a like nothing in gen- genetics or genes are a life sentence. We have so, cuz we have the genome which is like the code and then we have the phenome which is its expression. So it's like turning the light on. So just because my mom has diabetes, high cholesterol, etc. doesn't mean that I will get it. And so and how we kind of look at that is you know if we have two children with the same genetic mutation on diabetes if one child grows up with like a bowl of apple uh, apples at the end of the table but another child grows up with like a bowl of candy at the end of the table one of them is definitely more likely to express the gene to develop diabetes than the other so the phenome the expression of the gene is directly related to your environment and stress is one of those things that can turn on these genes so just because we have the drt drd2 mutation doesn't mean that it's going to be expressed Okay, so with all of that being said, back to my very simple top five tips. One of the thing, one of the tips that we can do to help normalize hunger is to engage in creative activities that are going to help to release dopamine from a different way. Okay, so that's things like you know doing dopamine blunting, writing to do lists and check marking it off, listening to music, doing something creative, even using essential oils. Or we can do things that are going to boost serotonin, which is going to balance out dopamine. So um, walking in nature, exposing yourself to sunlight again, getting body work done, all of that stuff. So just to recap, our first top tip was drinking water. Our second was walking out and exposing your pupils to sunlight. And there's two parts to there. There's the arcuate nucleus and the suprachiasmatic nucleus. And tip three is delaying hunger cues. Tip four is to engage in behaviors that are going to manipulate dopamine. So getting creative, etc. And the fifth and final recommendation is to create affirmations or exercises around feeling safe. So a lot of the time when we feel this desire to eat, this craving, it's not related to real hunger, but it is the nervous system saying, I need a hit of something. I feel dysregulated. I need to self-soothe. And so if we have a habit of hearing that like nervous system dysregulation, maybe something stressful happened. Maybe you even had a stressful thought about yourself, like looking in the mirror and being like, I don't like myself. The nervous system is going to be like, oh, this is very stressful. And it's going to want to turn that signal off because the nervous system doesn't like to feel uncomfortable. The nervous system likes to be happy and feel safe all to- at all times. And physically chewing is going to teach your nervous system that you're safe. So if you have a habit of hearing that nervous system dysregulation, even if it's like, I've had, I'm, I'm tired, I didn't get enough sleep, I'm scared I'm not going to get this job, I'm, I'm worried about money, like whatever the thought is or whatever the experience is, it's going to dysregulate the nervous system. So the nervous system's like, ah, something's wrong here. And then it's very easy to turn off that, ah, something's wrong here by chewing or eating. So if you have a habit of hearing that, dysregulation and responding by eating it temporarily is going to put the nervous system at ease and then brain's going to be like hey we're good we're surviving here right and so if we can engage in behaviors that are going to increase our level of safety and self-efficacy so this can be things like breath work or yoga or doing affirmations so 
uh, with a lot of my binge eating clients, I'll, I'll have them do affirmations that often reflect, I'm safe to let this behavior go. I'm safe to let it go. I, in the past, I've had a habit of using food as a mechanism to cope. I no longer need this habit. I'm safe to let it go. We focus a lot on making the nervous system feel safe so that it's not constantly looking for ways to self-soothe. And so you can do this through affirmations, through um, movement, breath work, yoga, and then somatic therapy, which is really, really interesting. I don't know too much about it, full disclosure, so I don't want to butcher it. But um, with somatic therapy, essentially the whole soma is the body, right? So the whole kind of idea of somatic therapy is that emotions are stored in the body and that is very true. And we have to like allow them to move through us, but oftentimes they get stored and stuck there. And then when we experience situations, we like trigger those same emotions that are stuck in the body. And so when we're doing somatic therapy, we're allowing the body to have these emotions move through us because emotions actually only last in the nervous system between 60 and 90 seconds. So as soon as you have a thought and it creates an emotion like, I'm not going to get this job, that's going to create the emotion of like, I'm a failure or something's wrong with me. Um, And if we just breathe through it or engage in somatic therapy, allow that emotion to kind of come and go, allow it to exist, it's not going to last very long. But the problem is human beings tie a story to everything. You're so smart. Your nervous system is so unbelievably cool and smart. And it's tying a story to these emotions. So you feel that emotion and then you just begin to ruminate. I'm a failure. Remember this other time I was a failure. You start to pull from back experiences and you keep these emotions alive in your body for long periods of time, sometimes even months, right? Like this is what depression is. We tie a story to it. We, we, we tie a story to these emotions. We make that story a part of our identity. And then that's, that's who we are now when really this emotion could have very easily come and gone. And so this is doing something like somatic therapy is a really easy way to allow the nervous system to re-regulate itself on its own. And this is just by allowing these emotions to come and go and using the body to release these types of things. So anyways, those are my top five tips. I hope that was super helpful for you guys. Right now, we've just launched the Mindful Microdosing course. It'll be available until the end of April. I've done a whole podcast on microdosing if you want to hear it. If you're interested in working one-on-one right now, I'm only taking uh, private clients or the group mastermind, and the group mastermind has a five-month wait list. So if you've always wanted to work with me, but you can't afford the private coaching, the group mastermind is really the best place for you. You're going to get the exact same type of treatment. We're going through the same exercises, same nervous system regulations, same reprogramming stuff, just in a group setting. And the benefit of doing it in the mastermind is we have that sense of community as well. So you're learning from one another. And right now, my mastermind ladies are doing so well and I'm so proud of them and I'm so excited and if you're somebody who wants to work more privately in one-on-one these are for my very my more severe treatment resistant disorder so this is like diagnosed addictions mental health conditions and eating disorder specifically binge eating disorder I don't work with anorexia then uh, you would be filling out an application to work one-on-one okay I hope you guys found that valuable I can't wait to hear all about how you're using these free tools in your life and it's funny because They are free, so there's like really no excuse, but I find that even with my clients who are paying for my services, when I offer these free tools, like people just don't stick to them. And like, that's such a mistake. You know, you have the opportunity to do this. And so if I'd love to hear it, hit me up on social media, send me an email about how these free tools have normalized your hunger over the course of this summer, over the course of the next couple months. And don't forget to like and subscribe and share this episode with somebody who needs it. Subscribing truly keeps this information free and available to everyone. 
Okay, guys, I had so much fun today, and I can't wait to see you next time on another episode of Head to Bye.